If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 5. As Sam was saying, our, our focus this morning is on verses 33 through 42, that last paragraph there in chapter 5. But because we are picking up after a long summer break, uh, we are going to at least review uh, where we are in the narrative. Because we're actually picking up in the middle of a scene, a scene that began back at verse 12. And if you'll scan back to there, you'll see that Luke tells us that the apostles were doing many signs and wonders among the people. They were healing and they were casting out uh, demons. And, and the people uh, saw this and were told that they held them in high esteem. And not only did they hold them in high esteem, but they, they were bringing to them their sick and their afflicted. But instead of celebrating this great work of God's grace, Luke tells us in verse 17 that the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And so the the rulers, the authorities, they, they respond to the great works that the apostles are doing, not with faith, but with blatant unbelief, seeking not, not only not to believe, but to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But before they could bring the apostles to trial the next day, during the night, the Lord opened the prison doors and he, and he brought out the apostles and he tells them to go back into the temple grounds and to continue preaching to the people all the words of this life. And the apostles do just that. We're told that they do it immediately. They do it at daybreak. At dawn the next day, they go back into the temple courts and again begin preaching. But of course, the the authorities don't know this, and so the next morning they send to the prison to get the apostles. But when they send there, they can't find them, and they, uh, they're confused because they said, listen, the prison was locked, the doors were closed, the guards were there, but no one was in the prison. And, and the, the authorities are perplexed by this. They're wondering what is going on. They're wondering what this is going to come to when someone comes into their presence and says, hey, the people you're looking for, the people you thought you put in the prison, they're actually back in the temple courts again preaching the gospel. And so here at this point, the, the authorities yet again have a decision to make. They have plenty of evidence that God is at work through the apostles. They have, they have plenty of evidence that, that these are messengers, like the Old Testament prophets, sent to them with the very words of God. They, they know this because of the signs and the wonders that they were doing. That was their validation. That was the, the Spirit at work through them. But also now because of this miraculous escape as God, the angel of the Lord, had, had brought them out of prison and sent them back to work. But yet again, the authorities choose to suppress the truth. They, they choose not to believe. They choose to, to take their stand against the truth, and they arrest the apostles again. They, they do it quietly because they're afraid of the people, but they arrest them yet again. And it is the trial after this, what is now their third arrest, 
that we read about in verses 22 through 32. Look again at what the high priest says. He, he basically says to them, hey, listen, we told you to stop. <laughs> we, we told you not to preach and teach in this name. And yet you are filling Jerusalem with this teaching. And not only are you filling Jerusalem with this teaching, but you intend people to believe that, that we were responsible for Jesus' death. And Peter's answer is simple and to the point. He, he says simply, we must obey God rather than men. It is God who has commissioned us. It is God who has, who has given us this task of, of preaching Jesus as the Christ. And we must obey God rather than men. Now, the implications of that short answer are, are profound. Peter is effectively saying that, listen, it is beyond reasonable doubt that God is at work in and through Jesus Christ. It's beyond reasonable doubt because while you killed him, God raised him up. The one who you put to death is not dead. The one who you hung upon a tree now sits enthroned in heaven. It is beyond reasonable doubt that, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Lord's Messiah, that he is the appointed Savior, that he is the, the King of kings, that he is David's greater son. It is beyond reasonable doubt, for you shamed him, but God vindicated and exalted him. You should be able to see who Jesus is, because he is alive, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And not only is it clear who Jesus is, it is clear that we are God's appointed witnesses to his reign. It's clear because not only does he say, not only are we witnesses to this, but we are witnesses to this together with the Holy Spirit. And again, that's a reference to those signs and those wonders. Miracles serve a purpose in the scriptures. When God works miracles through human hands, it is almost always to validate the, the words of the one doing the works. God works miracles so that we might know who speaks for him. And God was working miracles through the hands of the apostles so that people might know, these are my spokesmen. These are the people who speak for me. And so the apostles say to the high priest, he says, listen, it is beyond doubt that God was at work in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the leader and savior of God's people. And it is beyond doubt that we are his witnesses because the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And so Peter says, listen, we have to obey God. And you would be wise not to oppose us. This is the, the implication of what Peter says to the apostles. He, he does not cower before the authorities. He does not cower before the high priest. But simply he says to them, listen, we, we speak the truth. We speak God's truth. And you would do well to listen. And by doing that, with that short answer, Peter yet again gives the authorities a chance to respond. He yet again puts them in the position of having to make a choice. And yet again, they make the wrong choice. This is where we pick up the story this morning. Look again at what we see in verse 33. The authorities respond to, to Peter's brief sermon with rage. This is, this is not just that they were a little upset. This is not that they were annoyed. This is not that they were just frustrated. They were enraged. So much so that what does Luke tell us? He tells us that they literally wanted to put them to death. He literally wanted to kill them. 
This is like, uh, like the mob that we think of in the movies, right? There's they're someone who is an annoyance to their business, and so they're going to take care of it. That's exactly what the authorities are thinking. We need to kill these people. And we know that they actually have the power to do it because we're going to see that play out in the next chapters with Stephen. When they are enraged against Stephen, it does end in his death. They have the, uh, maybe not technically the authority, but they have in fact the authority to put the apostles to death. And so what stops them in this case? Well, of course, it is God's hand at work, but God works through a, a strange instrument. Because it is Gamaliel, it is, it is one of their own who speaks up and, and stops them from carrying out their murderous plan. He says to them, be careful what you are about to do with these men. Be careful how you're going to handle this. Be, be careful how you let your rage uh, manifest itself in this particular Situation. He says, you ought not to put them to death. And he, and he gives them an argument for not killing the apostles. And his argument's actually fairly simple. He says, listen, if this undertaking is of men, it is going to fail. And, and he has examples to support his, his case. He says, listen, you remember Thutis? You know, he, he rose up. He thought he was somebody. He claimed that he was the leader and the savior of God's people. And, and he, he attracted to him a crowd. And, and they, were, they were becoming an, an annoyance to this same council and to the, the people. And yet, what happened? He was killed. And when he died, his followers dispersed. The same thing happened with another guy named, named Judas. Judas claimed to be somebody. He claimed to be the leader and the savior of God's people. And he gathered to himself a, a, a crowd, a following. But he too was killed. And what happened? His leaders dispersed. His, his followers dispersed. He says, so listen, if this is of men, it's going to fail because Jesus is just like them. But if it is of God, if this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. If this is of God, you're merely going to find yourself opposing God, which is never the place you want to be. You never want to find yourself on the other side of the court from God. You never want to find yourself working against his purposes because he is the Lord Almighty, the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so he says, listen, if this is of man, it's going to fail. If it's of God, you're never going to be able to stop it. And we need to understand that that this is not a test that we can use in a sort of all situations to determine what we should do as the people of God. This is, this is not a, a universally applicable test that, that we can use. Well, listen, if it's of man, it's going to fail. If it's of God, it's going to succeed. So therefore, we don't really need to, to do anything. Yes, there is a sense, you know, from a, from a cosmic, eternal perspective where we can say, yes, everything that is of God is always going to succeed. Everything that is of God is always going to be established. And all of the plans of the men who, who oppose his kingdom, they will come to naught. The, the end of the, their way is destruction. That is absolutely true. And it is our confidence, actually, that, that, that our God will reign, that he sits upon the throne, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, and that it is his purposes that will stand. But that does not mean that in every case we should just leave things alone and see how the chips fall. That's not the, the right application of this text. 
the right application of this text is not to say, well, okay, well, God's in control, so therefore we don't really need to worry about anything. Uh, we don't need, need to try to make anything happen. We don't need to try to do anything. We don't need to try to oppose wickedness. We just need to kind of let things go because ultimately God is in charge. We kind of know that at a, uh, at a purely uh, human level, right? I can remember my, uh, my uh, growing up in the, in, my, uh, in the bathroom at my parents' house, uh, there was a, a little placard that said, all that is necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing, right? You know, a quote referring uh, to uh, the, the world wars of the, of the second century and saying, listen, you know, if the Allies had used this logic against Hitler and the Nazis, it would not have gone well. Well, you know, if it's of God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to succeed anyway. And if it's of man, it's going to fail, so therefore we don't need to worry about it. And if we want to bring the example into the, the church, we, we know from, from, the, from church history that, that we don't follow this logic. We don't apply this logic in all situations. Luther didn't say, well, you know, this whole indulgence thing, I'm not really sure that's of God, you know, but, but if, it's, if, it's, if it's of man, it's going to fail, and if it's of God, you know, then, then I, I can't oppose it anyway. No, he, 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 he worked against the corruption that he saw in the church. And so we, we recognize that, that we can't apply this logic at, at all situations. Sometimes God uses people. He uses human instruments to oppose wickedness in this world. And, and sometimes it is, it is the righteous who need to stand against the wicked precisely because God is not with them. There are times when we need to work against injustice, when we need to work against wickedness, when we need to, to work against oppression. There, there are times when we need to, to take our stand with righteousness and seek to, to bring it about. God, we can't take Gamaliel's argument here and just say, well, okay, we're, let, let the chips fall where they may. I don't have to do anything because ultimately it's God who is in control. But if Gamaliel's logic is not universally applicable then we must ask ourselves, what gives it credence in this particular situation? Why, why is this argument convincing here if it's not convincing everywhere? And I think we can find our answer to that question when we look at the, the specific cases that Gamaliel references. Here are two men, and, and really two among many, you may have heard at some point that there's a, there's a debate about this Thutis, because there is a Thutis who, who rises up as a rebel against Rome later after this. And, there, and uh, some um, you know, critics will look at that and say, well, listen, you know, Luke clearly has his history wrong here, because Thutis doesn't come until ten years later. The problem with that is that Thutis is a fairly common name, and there were lots of people who rose up against Rome. In fact, we know of three Judases in particular. We don't know which one exactly he's talking about here, because we know from other records of at least three Judases who were rebels against Rome. It's, and it's not unlikely that there, were more than, there was more than one Thutis. You know, there, were, there were many who recognized Rome as an oppressor. There were many who thought that they were going to be the ones to save God's people uh, from that oppression. And so here he cites two of them, and he says, listen, there was a Thutis, there was a, a Judas. These were men who claimed to be leaders and saviors of God's people, just like Jesus. They claimed to be the anointed one, they claimed to be the Messiah. And yet, when Rome perceived them as a threat, Rome stepped in and put them to death, just like Jesus. Jesus was executed by lawless men. Yes, he was executed through the instigation of the authorities, but he was executed by the Romans. 
And so just like Thutis and, and just like Judas, Jesus had been one who claimed to be a leader and a savior, and yet he was put to death by Rome. And so just like the, the followers of Thutis and Judas dispersed after his death, he said that is what we can fully expect to happen here. Jesus claimed to be somebody. He was killed, and his death and now invalidates his claims. And so his followers will soon disperse. Unless, of course, unless, of course, he actually did rise from the dead. See, that's the, the specific of what's going on here. That's, that's why Gamaliel's argument works specifically here. He says, listen, here is someone who claimed to be someone, claimed to be a savior, but he was killed. He was defeated on the battlefield. That invalidates the claim. Unless, of course, he rose again from the dead, victorious over that. Unless, of course, his death was his enthroning. Unless, of course, his death was his victory. And so he says to the authorities, basically, he says, listen, unless you're prepared to acknowledge the reality of the resurrection, you don't need to take the risk of putting these apostles to death. He says, you, know, you don't need to, to, to get Rome on your back. He said, listen, this will handle, this will take care of itself. This will, this will, these, leader, these followers will disperse if Jesus is really dead. And so while Gamaliel is not speaking from a position of faith, he nevertheless is speaking the truth. He is inadvertently acknowledging that Jesus' resurrection is the foundation upon which all of the claims of the church are built. Jesus' resurrection proves everything. In fact, it's what Paul himself will say in, in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, listen, if Jesus is not raised, then we are misrepresenting God and we are to be pitied above all men. But Jesus is raised. And because he is raised, the gospel that we proclaim is true. If Jesus is raised, then God is at work in him. He is the Christ, and we are his spokesmen, working wonders by his power. That's exactly what Gamaliel is saying. It's what the apostles had been saying. It's, it's, the, it's the logic that the apostles used with the high priest during the trial. They said, listen, we have to obey God, and we know what obeying God means because Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is now reigning, and he will come again. And because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is now reigning, think about what that means. It means that this undertaking is of God, and it cannot be stopped. That's what I want us to, to reflect on this morning. Uh, we are people who know that Jesus is alive. We, we are people who know that he has been raised from the dead and is now reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. And think about what that means. Think about what that confirms for us. It, it means that the church... The church is the work of God. God is the one building up his church. So what Jesus says. He says, all authority has been given to me, and I now go with you as you go about making disciples to the ends of the earth. This work is of God. And what does that mean? It means that the gates of hell... <laughs> cannot stand against the advance of the church. We, we usually have that image reversed in our mind. We, we think of the gates of the church holding against the onslaught of hell. But, but the image is actually the other way around. 
The gates of hell will not be able to stand the advance of the church. Jesus will build his church. Jesus' kingdom will be established on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a comfort to us as the people of God. Our king reigns, and he will reign. Our king will finally win the victory. And this morning we've heard about Christians in Afghanistan who are opposed by, by Muslims whose lives are, are actually at risk. And of course, we could, we could multiply that story around the world as there are places throughout the globe where, where the church is threatened by wicked men. And while those threats are real, and while the suffering of God's people is sometimes severe in this life, we know for certain that God's church will be established, that Christ will win the victory. And we know it because he is alive, he is risen, and he is reigning. And that's true not only in Afghanistan, that's true here as well. We see the church threatened here, do we not? We see the church more and more marginalized. We see those who are, who are more and more opposed to the church. The church is not just something quaint to, to be ignored. It is more and more something to be opposed. It is, it is considered intolerant and, and wicked to be, to be opposed. And, and we can fear for the, the future of the church, and yet we recognize that while those threats are real and while the suffering that, that comes might be severe, even here in the West, nevertheless, we know that our King lives. And therefore, His church will be established. That is our absolute and, and certain hope this morning. That, that the church will advance, the, the gospel will advance, it will go forth. And its advance cannot be stopped even by the gates of hell. As I said, that doesn't mean that we won't suffer, it doesn't mean that, that we, uh, we won't uh, at times be bewildered by, by the way that God does things. After all, Jesus accomplished his victory by dying on a cross. That tells us something about what the life of the church might look like. Jesus' victory came through death. It'll be the same for his, his church. We will suffer. We will be called upon to, to suffer. But this absolute assurance that Jesus will build his church, it's, it prepares us. It prepares us to endure that suffering in a, in a unique way. It's what we actually see in the apostles here. Notice the response of the apostles at the end of verse 39. We're told that the council took Gamaliel's advice. Now, again, don't misunderstand that. <laughs> that doesn't mean that they suddenly believed the gospel. They are still opponents of the apostles. They've just decided not to kill them. And so instead of killing them, they, they beat them, probably a, a flogging, probably the 40 lashes minus one that uh, Paul tells us that he, was, that he received five times during his uh, ministry. It's the, the most severe physical punishment that was allowed under Jewish law, short of death. So this is a, a severe beating. And then after beating them, they, they remind them, hey, you got this beating because you were preaching in Jesus' name? Don't do that anymore, or more will follow. 
That's the warning. That's the, the threat. And so how do the apostles respond? We, we see it there in verses 41 and 42. First, they rejoice. They rejoice. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. And then they keep on serving, doing the good works that they have been given to do in the temple publicly and house to house privately. And, and, and that response, that twofold response of, of rejoicing and working is exactly the response that we are called to. First, we are called on to rejoice in our suffering. Again, this does not mean rejoicing in the suffering itself, as if the suffering itself was a, was a good thing. But rather, it is rejoicing that we have been called into the service of the king. Think about it. We, we know how this works. It sounds strange to our ears when we just read it on the page. You know, rejoicing and suffering, that sounds, that sounds strange. But, but I want you to know that you, you actually know more about this than maybe you even give yourself credit for. As, as you all know, we are uh, taking care of two little kids right now. Uh, Major, who is 20 months, and then Magic, who is uh, four months. Right? And, and it's been a reminder to Sarah and I that it's hard to take care of little kids. You know, it changes your schedule. It changes your life. And yet, many of you, many of you have, have given up mornings, have, have volunteered to, to take them so that we can get some work done. That's not the way you want to spend your morning. You know, that, that's not how you, would have, how you would have said, hey, if I got the day off, I'd really like to take care of a 20-month-old. That, you know, that, that's just not the way that works. Now, I'm not saying that taking care of a 20-month-old is like a flogging, but, but listen, <laughs> it's not easy. And yet you have rejoiced. You have rejoiced to, to come alongside us. You have done it with smiles on your faces, and you have done it happily saying, it is a privilege to be able to serve. That's what the apostles are doing here. They are rejoicing, not in the suffering for its own sake, but they are rejoicing that they have been called into the service of the king. It is an honor to serve. It is a privilege to serve, even if it means suffering, even if it means death. It is a privilege to serve the king. And so that's exactly what they keep doing. They, they rejoice in the privilege of serving the king, and then they keep on serving. It's what we see. They, they continue going in the temple. They continue going house to house. They, they keep on serving the king, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, doing those good works that they have been given to do by their king. And that's the response that we are called to. We serve a risen king. And because we serve a risen king, the future is not in doubt. The church will be established. His kingdom will come. And we have the privilege of participating in that good work. He's given us a part to play in the good work that he is doing. Not because he needs us. I sometimes joke that it only takes twice as long when your kids help, right? You know, that, that's, the, that's the way that it works. And yet God, in his gracious wisdom, has, de has decided to let us help. He's decided to give us a part to play in the good work that he is doing. We can rejoice in that. And we can give ourselves to that fully and without compromise, without reservation, because we know that Jesus is alive. We know that Jesus is reigning, and we know that he will come again. And because we serve a risen king, and because we've been given the privilege of, of participating in the good work that he is doing, 
That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice uh, in your goodness. We, we thank you uh, for... We thank you for the privilege of being called into your service. Father, we, we recognize that in this present evil age, that service sometimes entails suffering. And that it is by the blood of your saints that you sometimes build up your church. But Father God, even given the suffering, we rejoice at the calling because we know that you are the risen King and that not even the gates of hell can stand against the advance of your church and of your people. And so we thank you for the privilege of serving, and we pray that you would strengthen us to continue serving faithfully day after day, both in public and in private, to the glory and the praise of your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.